Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 80 of the Health Unchained podcast. It's been over a year since COVID-19 was officially declared a global pandemic. In that one year, dozens of vaccines have been created. Many have gone through clinical trials, and a few have actually been approved by regulators for the mass population. It's amazing to think how the pharma and biopharma industries had to quickly optimize their clinical operations in order to meet the global demands brought on by the pandemic. Clinical studies are needed before any drugs, treatments, vaccines, medical devices, or even in some cases, healthcare apps can be considered safe and effective for public use. Clinical studies are an expensive endeavor requiring dedicated clinical professionals and willing human participants. In today's episode, the head of Global Clinical Sciences and Operations Innovation at UCB, Diza Lee Chun, talks to us about some of the technology innovations her and her team are developing to improve clinical trials data management and patient consent management. Diza is co-leading a nonprofit blockchain working group called Fuse, P-H-U-S-E. The collaboration involves over 20 companies, including pharma, technology vendors, consultants, academia, and government bodies. The idea of decentralized clinical trials is a hot buzz topic in healthcare and blockchain communities, and the full realization of decentralized clinical studies is still years away. In this episode, we learn about some of the challenges and opportunities blockchain technology can bring to clinical science from a big pharma perspective. I really enjoyed speaking with Diza, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Diza Lee Chun, head of Global Clinical Sciences and Operations Innovation at UCB, a Belgium-based multi-billion-dollar pharmaceutical company. Diza is also co-leading the first Fuse blockchain working group and was named top 100 tech woman advisor and entrepreneur by the Financial Times 100 most influential BAM leaders. Diza, so nice to have you on. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for having me. And hello to all the listeners. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Awesome. I think it'd be best to get started with a brief background about yourself. So I know you've been at UCB for over 15 years, but how did you even get there? Yes, it's been quite a journey, I would say. Let me start by, yeah, I've been in the industry, yes, over 15 years now. My current role, I am responsible for evaluating and piloting in innovative solutions in clinical trials. So in other words, basically focusing on clinical innovation and uh, business digital transformation. So part of my journey, I started working for a CRO, a clinical research organization, a phase one unit as a medical research scientist. And then I basically moved to the pharma where I managed different enterprise systems, the acquisition and, and led various different teams. 
The interesting part is that prior to joining Pharma, I was a co-founder for an IT company for seven years. And I did this while I was still getting my degree and majoring in pharmaceutical chemistry. So, of course, after this, I became a licensed pharmacist and decided to pursue my EMBA at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. Part of that journey, I, I also like to do a bit of volunteer work and, a, and advisor work. So I've done this in the past. And more recently, I started, as you mentioned, uh, the FUSE, which is a nonprofit organization run by volunteers. And FUSE, for, for those who are not familiar, it's spelled P-H-U-S-E, and that stands for Pharmaceutical Users Software Exchange. And it provides a, a mutual ground for collaboration, and it includes collaboration from FDA and EMA. And currently, we have approximately 100 members in this work group that I started. And one of the first projects we basically covered in a white paper to bring awareness about blockchain. We realized there was a, a group of us that I met through basically a, I would say a conference where I, I did a roundtable discussion and we basically got together and we ended up finding a place where we could all collaborate freely and, and provide ideas on how we could potentially use this solution in clinical trials. So we ended up basically writing this white paper that was uh, peer reviewed and released back in 2018. Then we proceeded with a second project focusing on delivering a proof of concept on, the, on patient data. And we just recently published our, our peer review journal back in January, so it's also posted there. And yeah, based on, on all these activities, I, I've been, as you mentioned about being awarded uh, by Financial Times, I mean, it's been a, a great honor for me. I was also uh, recognized and awarded top 100 women in technology by Tech Women in London. So mm -hmm. for me, it was, I'm this person who is basically doing very passionate things about innovation technology. And for me, just being recognized by my peers is just amazing. That's definitely a great honor to be receiving that award. That's really cool. And among the greatest leaders in that region and in, in that marketplace. I, I do have a question about how you got into chemistry and pharma, because I like to understand how my guests started their career, because as students, as young students, mm -hmm. curiosity is what takes you um, towards your passion. So why did you get into chemistry and pharma? That's a great question. Well, I was funny story. I was also contemplating to be a mathematician, but I decided at the time when when I was choosing my path, and I was thinking, well, what I'm passionate about is helping people, and and I was thinking, what can I do in order to bring value to society? I mean, of course, part of helping people, I was looking at more in the medicine area, and. Well, I was thinking of potentially becoming a medic or basically doing or becoming a pharmacist. And eventually I decided to, to do my pharmaceutical chemistry degree because I realized with being a, a GP or medic, I mean, you have that direct interaction with the patients. And as a pharmacist, I mean, you're, you're not necessarily you have that direct interaction, but what fascinated me has always been like chemistry and thinking about potentially developing a new drug or be part of that development of a new drug that could potentially help a, a wider range of the population or people who are suffering a specific disease, I thought that would be more meaningful for me, the reason why I, I chose to be a pharmacist. One thing I just want to mention for the audience is that you're saying things like GPO 
general practitioner. So this is, can you tell the audience where you're coming from? Where are you right now? Like I'm world? in the UK. In the UK. Yes. And I'm very curious about your role at UCB. You are the head of innovation for the Global Clinical Sciences and Operations Unit at UCB. What does that job entail? Yes, part of the job is looking at the strategy and the digital business transformation, focusing on the clinical innovation. So it's looking at what solutions we can apply that we can help to accelerate the drug development process. So part of it, we are exploring, for example, solutions like the disinterest clinical trial by using the telemedicine solutions, remote assessments, exploring and basically piloting some of these new solutions that we can embed earlier on in an asset, for example, and how we can basically uh, push the needle in, in terms of accelerating that drug development process in general. So this is one of the, I would say the key area of my responsibility. I mean, of course, Parve is also leading a, a team of experts uh, in this area that we can basically embed some of the solutions in our clinical trials earlier on and also in our assets that we can start planning basically all the digital solutions across and make it easier for the sites, which are the investigators, but also reduce the burden for patients. So we're always looking at how we can bring the trials to patients' home, in other words. I mean, now in this COVID era where a lot of patients couldn't travel to see the doctors, and cannot communicate with the doctors or, or have that face-to-face -face interaction. We were looking at solutions that we can do remotely via video, which is the medicine component. So those are things that my team has been working on. We continue to work on. So it's trying to look at, it's not just about the innovation piece, but it's also about the change management and the adoption. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest one. Yeah, and a lot of people, they say the technology part is easy. It's getting people to start using it effectively. That's the hard part, the change management. Exactly. So you certainly have your challenges there, I'm sure. And one thing to mention is I'm also in telehealth too, so there are so many different ways that telehealth can improve, not just the process, but also the satisfaction of the patient and the providers because the experience is just more delightful in many ways instead of going and finding a place to park and meeting with the provider. So there's lots of benefits there. But besides the obvious benefits of telehealth for, for clinical operations, I would like to know more about how blockchain initiatives can improve clinical operations. So what we're working on is through the consortium, of course, Fuse being one of them. The other one is the IMI Pharma Ledger. So IMI is the Collective Medicines Initiative, which is EU-funded, I mean, partly funded by uh, the European Union, but also the other part is funded by the pharma. And we are actually exploring this. We're tapping into uh, the kind of like three main areas. We, If I start with the IMI Pharma Ledger, uh, we're tapping into three main areas of supply chain, clinical trials, and health data marketplace. And we're looking at, you know, how we can use the technology like blockchain, which provides that uh, security, the trust, the transparency, all these qualities that this system uh, provides and how we can actually use in these different areas and, and the different use cases that we have developed. So the plan is that we want to develop a scalable and sustainable, I would say, blockchain solution that we who are part of this consortium, no matter what partners can use and, and collaborate in that sense. 
So in terms of what areas we could, as an example, one of the things that we're looking at in one of the use cases, um, which I'm like co-leading, it's for example, the e-consent, clinical trial recruitment, for example. So it's more about how we can bring some of this medical health records, of course, having that permission provided by the patients and how we can use that information to be, be able to find the right uh, participants if they're interested. And instead of like, the participants having to sign up to all this is more about they just come to one area and they will be informed about all the uh, potential clinical trials that they could participate. So it's more about providing that, I guess, uh, an easier way for patients to to find the right um, clinical trials if that's their interest. And also for us in the pharma to also find the, the, the right solutions and how we can basically have that transparency of information that with the, when we're looking at digital data, we need to know where the source comes from. So it's important that this is type of an activity that blockchain could provide. I mean, the full audit trail of the data and the full transparency of what levels of access you might have or permission you might have. And I think we, we're still, of course, at the beginning of this. I mean, it's not something that we can use today, but at least some of these projects or consortiums that we are exploring this and building, I mean, eventually our hope is that it will accelerate our, the drug development because that's the idea behind that. The, the other piece is also FUSE uh, Blockchain Workgroup. I mean, we've already done our proof of concept and we have a lot of lessons learned from that. So right now we are discussing about our third project with a co-lead. So this, this is going to start very soon. And yes, it's exciting times. I mean, as mentioned, blockchain, it's still something that uh, a lot of farmers are doing proof of concept and piloting, not necessarily being able to kind of scale up at this stage. I mean, our processes are complex and, and we have so many stakeholders to, to think of when we're building something like this. So it's not just an easy thing that we can say, hey, we're going to swap our enterprise system with blockchain. I mean, we still need some enterprise systems that we use. I mean, it's it's a matter of, can we replace some of these processes, make it more efficient? And I would say yes, because otherwise we wouldn't have like 29 partners in this IMI project, 22 million euros uh, invested in this three years project. And, and we have 12 pharma companies, we have universities, patient organizations, I mean, even government authority are, are involved with this and three hospitals are involved in this big project. So it's very exciting, at least in, in why, what's happening in this uh, IMI pharma legend. Yeah, and it's only been a few years that you've been working on this working group. So the potential mm -hmm. is still, still very huge. And we haven't even scratched the surface of the potential impact of blockchain for society in general. This is just a very small application well, not small, but it's one application that you guys are working on. One thing you mentioned is e-consent, and I think that's a really interesting application because it's relatively simple compared to managing medical records overall. E-consent, if you isolate that one specific application, can really help determine not just what types of data should be shared, but also when it should be shared and for how long and with who. So there's a lot of interesting ways you can build sort of like smart contracts, I guess, for clinical trials in that way. Has that been your most interesting application right now? Or is it, uh, what's getting the most ground? What's, what are you seeing as like the lowest hanging fruit for your team or for the working group? Well, 
I wouldn't be able to speak for everyone, but in my opinion, for me, it's the, actually it will be both because e-consent is something that it has been developed by some of these uh, blockchain companies. So there's been some of the startup companies who already developed some type of solution. And I agree with you about the smart contract because some of the ideas that we had, white paper, was around if you have someone consenting, you know, it's tracking also the different versions of consent. And if they haven't signed that, I mean, maybe the next activity that they were supposed to, or the assessment that they're supposed to do, there's going to be some type of warning that, okay, it will flag. So those are kind of like the rules that you will apply for whether some of this process will continue or not. So that can apply to anything, even in supply chain, for example, because that's another area where my peers are working on about, for example, the cold chain. You know, mm-hmm. if it doesn't meet the, the temperature, I mean, for example, we're talking about the, the COVID vaccine, how they have to be temperature controlled. And, and so it's very important to have that tracking mechanism. And of course, the smart contract embedded that could already alert us if some of this is not, it's, it's not within the limits that we set in a smart contract. So it's important. Yeah. And I think just to explain to the audience why that's actually important, if you imagine um, a system where you have a shipment or a batch of vaccines that are shipped, but while they are getting shipped, at some point they reach a temperature that's too high and it denatures the, the biological vaccine. What happens then is potentially if the administrators at the site don't know about it, they go ahead and inject these people potentially and the assumption is, oh, these vaccines should be working because nobody knew that all the vaccines were denatured because the temperature was too high. And then that data is used downstream as, oh, look, this vaccine isn't working in this region or with these sorts of people in this geographic area or something like that. And that data goes maybe into one article and then 10 articles. So there's a lot of potential for scientific error that can get translated into many other issues and and poor science in general. So I think there is this natural growth of open science as well in the blockchain community where data can be more open and transparent. Yeah, so a lot of thoughts there. (laughs) Anything you want to comment on? Yes, and I agree with what you just said, Ray, because what's important with blockchain is about data. It's it's, it's also about data provenance. So you'll be able to look at all the different transactions that take place. And I think just going back to some your initial questions about telemedicine and the importance of that, well, the other values. The other values is the data quality. That it provides. So we're using that component with blockchain where we're already making the data more secure, where we're saying the data that even the patients bring in as electronic medical records that we might use in a clinical trial. You know, we have to have that kind of that layer of transparency, visibility, and where that data comes from. So I think systems like this, blockchain solutions, is definitely the future. I mean, otherwise we would not be all investigating on this and and putting all our efforts on this and also looking at some of these countries who they already adopted these solutions in, in in their medical records i mean it's just amazing you know estonia is not the only one there's other countries that are doing and following the the footsteps of estonia so it just makes you think that you know there's definitely more I would say effort that's needed in order to get that bigger adoption but right now we're just at the beginning where we're still understanding what we can do, cannot do, what are the limitations? Also understanding the data privacy components. I mean, especially in Europe, we have GDPR. What does that mean when we're using blockchain? When we start discussing this, as you can imagine, everyone has different opinions. So it becomes uh, very interesting, I would say. But yes, these are the key things 
the, the you know for us to understand the fundamentals of what works and what doesn't because you cannot I, I don't say I wouldn't say that every single process we should put a blockchain to it. Definitely not. We definitely need to understand the use case, understand what's the value and and yeah, go from there. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I just want to mention for the audience is if you listen to episode 79, the one before this one, I did interview the chief medical officer of Guard Time and they're based in Estonia and they're doing a lot of the vaccine guard kind of work. So check that out. But yeah, I agree with you. There are so many questions about how blockchain will be affecting these industries um, and especially the pharma industry. And nobody really knows how it's going to be, how the future looks like. I think it's important that these conversations continue to happen and we keep pushing the limits because the only way to learn and grow is to, you know, question the status quo. And that's very challenging because with blockchain, you might get to, you know, not just technology conversations, but there's economic conversations. There is financial conversations, social impact conversations that need to happen. So it's very interesting. I like to compare it to the internet where the internet became this place where you can exchange content and information and data but not value not true value and now with this blockchain layer of the internet the idea is you'd be able to truly transact real value back and forth over over the internet and that's not been done before so a lot of questions (laughs) yes and to add you know for me it's not just about blockchain but it's all these different solutions as well that we bring together because imagine blockchain and ai the value in that, you know. So it's something that, of course, we've been discussing among peers and how we can use this. And one of the use cases actually is looking at personalized medicine. One of the use cases that we have in the IMI pharma ledger. One is bringing the data and then how we can, you know, use that for the benefits and kind of personalize, you know, the uh, the treatment or the care or the quality of life for that patient. So there's still a lot to do. Very exciting times for sure. Yeah, and one of the benefits potentially with using a blockchain is the privacy guards around the patient's data that we didn't have now, that we don't have now, because now all the databases are kind of centralized and there are security risks inherent with that kind of architecture. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. According to reports in the Boston Globe, an anonymous donor donated Bitcoin to Cape Cod Healthcare, a hospital system in my state of Massachusetts. One morning, the team at Cape Cod Healthcare got an email from a donor telling them to check their newly established bank account that can process cryptocurrency transfers. On January 28th and on February 19th, the donor, who has previously donated U.S. dollars to the hospital, sent about $400,000 in Bitcoin to Cape Cod Healthcare. That's a total of about $800,000 in Bitcoin, which the hospital immediately converted to U.S. dollars. Before creating the crypto-compatible bank account, the health system had to go get clearance from its legal and finance departments, as well as CEO Mike Loff about accepting the digital coin. Cape Cod Healthcare found that Internal Revenue Service has a procedure in place for virtual transactions including those made as a charitable gift. In gifting Bitcoin to a charity, the donor does not need to report gains or losses to the IRS. Christopher Lawson, the company's senior vice president and chief development officer, 
said he thinks more nonprofit organizations, including museums and universities, will begin exploring how to accept cryptocurrency as gifts. While I understand that Bitcoin is volatile and appreciate their choice to immediately convert the Bitcoin to US dollars, I do believe there will be a future where our economic infrastructure is upgraded so that future Bitcoin donations are held as Bitcoin and can be spent to purchase supplies and pay the organization's employees. One step at a time, I suppose. What do you think about this story? Check out the link in the show notes for more details. Let me know on Telegram or Twitter. And now back to the interview with Diza Lee Chun from UCB. Let's talk about, about a little bit about COVID-19 now and some of the clinical trials work and studies that are going on. Can you share with us, from your perspective, the latest on COVID-19 trials? I know there's variants that are in different parts of the world. They're probably everywhere by now. But what are your most major concerns or what are you thinking? Well, and this is just my opinion, of course. I mean, in terms of COVID clinical trials, I think, yeah, there are uh, many companies who are tapping into this, working in, in the trying to come up with a vaccine. You know, the question is, we, we've done it uh, in a, a speed of time, I would say. I mean, a lot of these companies develop this solution. And, it, and that, for me, that's innovation. I mean, they managed to deliver something within a year. And it's uh, unheard of in, in current times, I would say. And it's interesting to see how much support there was and a lot of con- collaboration with also the agencies, because that actually drove a lot of the acceleration in developing some of these uh, vaccines and basically running this, you know, through the different phases in the clinical trial. And but the problem that I see is that because we have so many variants of, you know, the COVID, it's, it remains to see whether some of this will be, a, how effective or, or the efficacy uh, around this is. And, and of course, safety is a key component. So I think it remains to see how, how the data comes. And once that's basically shared, that there's going to be a lot of peer review on that data analysis. So I think it's important that scientists also look into that. Yeah. You know what's interesting? The people that are in that world where they're doing clinical trials work or in the science communities, they're all amazed by how fast the vaccines have gone out. And the people that don't know much about science or vaccines at all, they're all complaining about how slow the rollout is. So it's kind of funny how how that works. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a different kind of like a you know process if you see it this way. And but what I find interesting is, like I said, is the level of funding and collaboration that mm. happened. Because we wouldn't be here today with so many vaccines that's been already approved. And the the difficult side is that you know, as any type of like flu or or COVID in this case, you know, it the how quickly it mutates. In this case, of course, uh, COVID it, it's not as quick as the flu, but Again, it remains to see what happens. We need definitely more data to see how this new variant reacts to the current approved drugs or vaccines. Absolutely. And, you know, that'll just take time because we need that time to, to analyze results and how people feel. Let's talk a little bit more about blockchain. I'm curious when you talk about it, are you just generally talking about public and private permission, permissionless blockchains? Do you have a preference? Do you feel that 
there's a certain protocol that is more valuable than the others or is it still too early to tell what's your impression on the types of blockchains out there yes we did analysis on this and i have my own opinion i know not everyone would agree but when we're looking at clinical trials for example i would say it would have to be a permission just because you know who are your stakeholders who you want to grant access to and because we have to restrict even more so who has privy to what data and especially when we're looking at clinical trials i mean sometimes you do trials where it could be blinded so maybe a set of patients are, are receiving the real drug and another set are receiving placebo data so even the people who are working with the data sometimes they don't even know so a lot of that i, I think we, we just need to maintain that layer and i think having a permissioned type of blockchain would help that makes sense are there any certain protocols that you find most interesting or is it still like for example i'll throw some names out like ibm hyperledger ethereum is a public blockchain but it can be used in private ways yes i don't have a i would say a preference per se we again we did an analysis there's i'm not too much fan of a public um blockchain but Sometimes with public blockchains, you could, if you have the right kind of like implementation in terms of how data could be accessed, I mean, potentially it becomes kind of almost permission in some ways. And yeah, there's some protocols out there, but you know, I cannot just name one because, you know, I think for the different use cases, maybe one is better than the other for a specific use case. So I, I really would, would like to. <laughs> yeah, no comment. That's. Yeah, no comment. I would say no comment on this. That's a fair, that's fair. So when I think about clinical trials, like you mentioned, it's basically a marketplace almost where you have potential patients or potential users of a new drug or treatment. And then you have the researchers and then you have providers and probably many other people in between, like facilitating a lot of that work. Have you has your team or have you looked into how incentive mechanisms can be developed within blockchains to create better clinical trials? Yes, we discussed a few ideas around this and the incentives about the, I mean, of course, none of this is valid or, or has been agreed, but there's been a lot of discussions in different consortiums over different peers about uh, tokenization, for example, or, you know, um, paying for the, the time. And you can say that paying for the time for providing access to some of the data. Also, when people are using the different wearables or devices, how potentially bringing that information, what that incentive would be. But it's not, it's not all about monetary. It could be just providing as simple as a better view of your health to patients or to even the clinicians and basically be able to be more informed about the progress of your condition or improving your quality of life by basically integrating all the different pieces of like solutions into one kind of like a view where you can make decisions for yourself or for the clinicians to make decisions about your health or your, your course of treatment. So I think there is other ways of 
exploring this. So like I said, it doesn't have to be purely monetary uh, benefit. Yeah, and one thing you mentioned is how you can collect potentially some wearables data. And I think that's very interesting because right now, for most trials, my understanding is that there's a protocol that they need to follow that's written before the experiment starts or before the trial begins. And we need to stick to that protocol and follow it. Of course, if there's deviations, that'll be reported, documented as needed. But in most cases, a lot of the external factors like how active is the person or maybe what they're eating or maybe their environmental factors are not incorporated into the study. That's my understanding. Maybe I'm wrong. So I think this integration of using smart devices, IoT and sensors over time as these become more commonplace, it's going to create additional inputs into the clinical trial studies. And maybe we'll find something out that we aren't expecting. So I think that's really interesting because with AI and blockchain and devices, you can create a whole, a much more rich view of the trials. Yes, and the the thing about clinical trials is very specific. So it will already give you a set of conditions, for example, and it will give you a set of assessments that the clinicians will have to do or the investigator will have to do and the, the, the participants or the patients will have to complete, for example. So if they're bringing their own device, their own wearable, they was captured beforehand. I mean, usually we don't use it prior to whatever data they captured before, but if it becomes potentially a device that you might be using that clinical trial, maybe they can continue using that. And it's just more about integrating the data eventually. But what I see the value is more about in the future, see a world where using all these devices, we can even predict or, or be able to earlier diagnosis. Because sometimes some of the conditions takes years to, to be diagnosed. And I think if people are already using some of these devices, that potential could feed in that information. And of course, using machine learning or AI, that's where I see the area of growth at the moment. I mean, where a lot of companies are tapping into, I mean, of course, in the industry, I mean, they're interested in that data to understand how, what's the disease progression. So if, if people are using some of this information or just use, or just through medical records, actually, just accessing that data, you know, be able to understand better, I think that will work as well. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. It's just a matter of basically uh, finding the right platforms because the problem right now that we have is that there's so many devices out there and there are a lot of devices that it's mainly for commercial use they're not even medical grade and of course in a clinical trial we have to use a medical grade and of course sometimes we might use an investigational device then eventually we explore and pilot and you know be able to use to collect validate data so, you know, understanding what type of device to use is very important as well. And also how you can basically extract the data afterwards, because there's no point if the, the system is closed and you cannot use it, then it's defeat the purpose, you know, if you cannot bring it together with others. So you've seen some companies doing that and it just makes you wonder, okay, what is the end game? I mean, if you want to be able to share your information with your doctor physician to help you, you, you want to have that access. If you want to grant them permission, I mean, those are things that some of these companies need to think of when, we, when they're designing and developing such system or device. 
hundred percent agree because the future of standards, like data standards, is going to be well. It is currently very important, and the interoperability between different systems, it's still you know not perfect as we all know. There's still a lot of room for improvement, but it is something that's everyone talks about, which is good. So I think that conversation has started at least. It's just a matter of how can we develop some sort of agreements between all the different parties where everyone's happy. <laughs> so much exactly. easier said than done. <laughs> exactly. And and the idea is also to use open APIs. Mm -hmm. So that's very key for integration. Yeah, no, I agree. Is there, so is UCB working with like open standards for their data in any way? And it's a very general question, but can you share a bit, little bit about how UCB operates? Yes, I can. I mean, in terms of clinical trials, we, we're part of the CDISC. So they're, they're kind of like the standards, kind of like consortium for the, the data that we collect in clinical trials. We also work with HL7. So yes, we, we definitely are part of this. And I would say all the pharma companies are are kind of involved in this type of like consortiums because about standardizing the data that we collect and of course with this COVID, I mean new standards came along as well. So there was a lot of changes that we had to had to do. How important is community development for the new blockchain enabled business models to be successful? Highly important. I think if we want to build a first of all looking at the use case and understanding who are your stakeholders and what's the value. So it's looking at, at that value per stakeholder because you want to ensure that there's that adoption eventually. So but it's also looking at what's the return investment, understanding what processes they have, what they might have to change. And I think bringing all the different parties uh, to the table to have that better understanding and be able to basically look at the whole solution or more like a holistic view of what's the value that we can bring, I think that's very important. I mean, I think that's part of the activities that with this consortium I'm participating and part of, we've been doing that. I mean, it's basically bringing the whole community because it's not just, just pharma on one side, but it's also patients as well. How would they, how would they use the system and what are the benefits for them, for the sites, for the clinicians, for the payers as well, for the regulatory agency. So, so yes, to, to your question, it's, it's very important to have them earlier in the discussion, earlier in the development process, so we understand what they need or want as well, and how to, we can embed all these kind of requirements into that when we're developing a solution. So I have a few other personal questions for you I'd like to ask as well. So who is your favorite scientist of all time? That's a tough one. Just having one, well, I, I have few actually. And the reason I ask is because you have that background in chemistry and pharma and, and clinical mm -hmm. science. So I'm assuming you have been inspired by some of these older scientists in the past. Yes, yes, you're right. Well, the, the first person that comes into my mind is Marie Curie. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I guess she's one of, I mean, for me, it's because of what she discovered is still being used today. I mean, it's so relevant what she's done, of course, and I guess there's no debate there, so we don't have to go into details. But the other part is that she being a woman in, in, in that era was more of a struggle for her to get a higher education and how she persevered to get that. And for me, that's just amazing of someone who has that passion 
to and that mindset of you know hey i have something to prove and i know i can do this and just persevere and then did all this and went through a lot of hurdles and journey to get where she she well, what she accomplished basically and what she discovered so for me that's inspiring and 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 the the second i would say the second person the person who discovered penicillin because of course it's penicillin it, it was the i guess the the magic drug in the earlier century and well alex alexander fleming being the well he, he was not the, the first one who discovered but he actually was the one who kind of like was close in, in basically developing it as a as a drug as a penicillin of course there's so many different people who actually were involved in that whole process. But for me, it's just exciting space. I mean, of course, for me, like you said, chemistry, just like the pharmaceutical area is so interesting for me. And, and if if I can contribute to that bit, I mean, that's why, you know, that that's the reason I went into this. And Diza, you are contributing and contributing a lot. So I really appreciate it. And I think the you know audience and the community really appreciates it because blockchain requires people like you to kind of explain to the newer people about what it can do, what what the purpose of technology is, and especially in healthcare. We all know technology is slow to be adopted in the healthcare system. So thank you for what you do. I also want to ask you what your favorite book is or most influential book you've read. So, well, there, I guess there's some management book that I've, that I've read throughout the years. And yeah, some has more impact than others. There's others that I'm currently reading, actually. So I, my, my learning never stops. So that's one thing, and and it, it doesn't include just books, but in journals as well. In general, and just my appetite of learning more. Some of the books that I in the past I've I've read, like the Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. So you know, like Stephen Covey, the Forty Eight Laws of Power, as another example, or the Tipping Points: How Little Things Can Make a Difference by Malcolm Gladwell. So I, I think those are some of the books that I was inspired and I learned a lot actually. I mean, I might not agree on some of the elements, but I would say the majority just resonates to me. And yes, these are some of the books that I, you know, would recommend. And yes, I'm reading some on the on the back end, some blockchain books, as you can imagine. But yeah, those are a few to mention. So another book I wanted to recommend was actually by Sean Mannion in Yale. It's called Blockchain for Medical Research, Accelerating Trust in Healthcare. That might be a book you would be interested in, so I would recommend it. Okay, yeah. thank you. I'll definitely have a look at this. Sure, yeah. And I did interview Sean Mannion actually on my show, episode 62 for the audience. Well, Diza, this has been a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Sounds like you're doing a lot of great work in the clinical trials innovation space, so really appreciate what you do. Is there anything else you want to leave with the audience? Well, I would say to continue to innovate. I mean, innovation comes in different shapes and forms, and it's not just about new technology. It could be as simple as a change in the process. So if you feel passionate about change and, and wanting to change the status quo because it's a simpler way of doing things, then I would say just persevere and continue that path. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.